0: New York Magazine's Sex Lives podcast is sponsored by Masters of Sex. The critically acclaimed series is back for a third season. Watch it this Sunday at 10, 9 central, only on Showtime. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells and with me today, as always, are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And Allison Davis of The Cut. Hey. Hi, David. Today, Maureen is going to interview Candace Bushnell of Sex and the City, and we're going to talk a bit about how we all feel about Candace and Sex and the City 15 years on.
1: And her new book, Killing Monica.
0: And we're also going to be talking about a new study that explains the heretofore unexplained phenomenon of how ugly people manage to date really attractive people. (laughs) Before we get started, I want to ask you a small favor. Here at Panoply, we're trying to learn more about our podcast listeners, and we want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that takes just a couple minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help Panoply to make great podcasts about the things you love and things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm survey, or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply.fm survey, or click the link in the show notes. Thanks. Now let's get started. First, let's talk about Candace and Sex in the City. So, Maureen, you want to tell us about how you hooked up with Candace, why you were interviewing her, and how you came to Schmooze?
1: Right. So it's sort of like the white whale as a sex columnist is the feeling of, like, when am I going to talk to Candace Bushnell? I mean, from the start of the sex column, the first thing you do, anybody sort of in that genre, you're like, you go look up the old Sex and the City columns, and you read them, and you think about them, and you think about yourself in context of them, I think almost... Any female writer in New York, you sort of have this weird, like, what is Carrie Bradshaw in relation to me?
0: In reading those columns, was it hard to separate Candace from the column, from the Carrie, from the show, or was it...
1: Well, they start off written as Candace. She switched the byline after a few years. The infamous quote was that she said, it was when my parents got a subscription to The Observer, I realized I couldn't write it under my name anymore. <laughs> she very openly created this alter ego that in the columns is very much her. I mean, it started as her. So that murkiness between Herself and her persona was sort of very overt then. And they're really smart columns, too. So then she has this new book that came out called Killing Monica, which is about a woman named Pandy Wallace. And Candy Bushnell just happened to write about Pandy Wallace. And Pandy creates a very popular series that's like a series of books and then it turns into a series of movies about a sexy writer who lives in New York and writes about her love life. And that's Monica. And it's about this woman, Pandy, reckoning with her legacy and deciding she needs to kill Monica, that this character has taken over her life. She doesn't know what's her, what isn't her. There is an actress called Sandra Beth Schnauzer, who plays Monica. (laughs) I mean, there was one reviewer who was like, that's a little anti-Semitic. I mean, I think there was more than one reviewer who probably said that.
0: So why does she hate the show and Sarah Jessica Parker so much.
1: So here's the thing. This is what everybody thought, and all the reviews basically were like, well, this is weird, flimsy cruelty. When I read it, I was like, oh my God, this woman is actually satirizing herself and what everybody thinks of her, that everybody thinks of her as a sort of like sickening, hot pink mess of a champagne whatever. And, and, and so yeah. she creates this character that is that, you know, the character needs to kill the character she created. It's like this sort of set of Matryoshka dolls of like destruction and creation that I thought was super interesting, particularly because like you could not write a more... Re- ridiculous satire of sex in the city than this the panda character at the end she burns off all of her hair she literally starts a riot at a feminist rally because she's trying to manipulate all of the women who thinks that she's a feminist icon into getting violent revenge on her ex <laughs> she puts on a burqa and runs away in it it's like oh my god this is her making fun of the, like the tragic end of the sex in the city franchise this when
2: book sounds awesome, sex in the, the city Two <laughs> comes up
1: i mean because like the horrors of i think Sex and City is that so many people loved it and thought it was so smart, but then you sort of get to the second movie when they're running around Abu Dhabi and you know, burkas and shit. Like, it got so embarrassing and the way it was marketed and all the tour buses going all over New York. Magnolia cupcakes and, yeah. There's literally a scene when the fans of Monica in this book, who, you know, you assume to be a stand-in for fans of Sex and the City, they literally have a pink champagne riot at one point, weaponizing the champagne flutes they wear on their heads and flinging them all over the place. And you're like, oh my God, is this the way Candace Bushnell views her fans? Because if so, this is a magnificent act the most sort of blasphemous and audacious thing you can do as a writer with a large fan base is to say, my fans are ridiculous. So I was like, she's a brilliant, brilliant woman. Everyone's got it wrong. Everybody's saying this is like flimsy chick lit. This woman is like the master. And in fact... When I interview her, she's like, I was inspired by Zuckerman Unbound. Bound. And you're like, well, there it is, right? <laughs> right? Except she also was really, really completely like, no, I'm not making any comparison. She's been so incredibly sort of stubborn about saying it's not about Sex and the City. Right. Not it's about not about, about that. And you're like, if it's not about any of those things, then like what?
0: Before we actually get to the interview, I wanted to ask both of you what you think about Sex and the City, however many years since it's been off the air, however many years since the last movie aired. Do you think of it as like a Frankenstein monster or Or do you think of it as a cultural product that still has some appeal... And maybe even some insight.
2: I feel like I was a fanatic when I was watching it, but it was also because I was in like middle school and high school and it was so filthy to me at the time. And like, now it seems like the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Now it's the prudest. Like, my mom loves it now. You know, it's like a fairy tale to her. But I feel like I went through a wave where I was like, that show was a piece of shit. Like, it wasn't edgy at all. It wasn't smart at all. And then I watched it. It's in heavy syndication. So when I'm like, you know, hungover on Sundays, I watch it on E or whatever. And I'm like, oh, those are like actual, real observations about being single and like older in New York. I'm a, a reborn
1: fan. There's sort of this public Re embracing of Sex in the City. Two years ago, Emily Nisbaum wrote a reappraisal of it. And she said, yeah. Well, this was the original. It was like she's the female Tony Soprano, which is like.
0: Maybe not quite Sort of a horrifying <laughs> comparison. I wonder if like the Entourage movie also had something to do with it, where they're like, Well, this oh, is really. way worse than it, if, if Sex <laughs> in the City did.
2: Know. I don't know. I would definitely say the Sex in the City movies were something that we had to forgive the franchise Both for. Both of them,
0: or just the second one? Both of them. I, I thought think were all of so it.
1: Bad. it I think people were unhappy with sort of the way in the later seasons it took a turn towards just like giving a fairy tale right. for her. And you're like, if she marries this horrible, horrible man who's like it destroyed her 30s and her ability to find a good relationship, if she actually marries the big at the end, then you're like, well, actually, that needs to be like a tragedy. You don't want to see them <laughs> smiling and swept away. That's a horrible thing.
0: Well, it also seems like it became a little bit, I mean, these things were always a little bit in tension, but a little bit less about sex and romance and a little bit more about just wealth and luxury, right?
1: Right. Especially when you're sort of reveling in luxury and wealth. There will be moments when that really resonates, and then there will be moments when it doesn't. And it makes sense that that sort of comes and
0: goes. I read an article about this restaurant on Grand Street, which is a terrible restaurant called O'Neill's, which is like where the bar that, I don't remember the two guys' names, but like the two boyfriends owned together. They owned a the oh, bar for a while. Oh, that's right. And it was, like, on the Sex and the City tour. So this restaurant is terrible. Like, there's, they have no reason to make any money. But every day at, like, three times a day, a bus would pull up. Twenty women would get off. They'd all order Cosmos. <laughs> and, like, it literally kept the restaurant afloat. For, like, they have,
1: like, vats and vats of maraschino cherries yeah. in the back. <laughs> yeah. They're single-handedly keeping the maraschino business alive. Let's maybe oh,
0: yeah. move on to the, um, the interview. What's the segment that we're going to be listening so to? So I
1: think... Everybody sort of looked at Killing Monica as her sort of appraising her own legacy. But when I asked her, she really said no to those comparisons. So that's what we're going to listen to first. Can you tell me a little about how the idea for this
3: book came about? It actually came from Philip Roth. (laughs) Oh, really? Tell me more. I had an idea Mm -hmm. um, about a middle-aged woman who leaves the city. And then I thought, that's just too bad. Boring. I really need to jazz this up. Mm -hmm. So I was just flipping through my Philip Roth collection and I started reading Zuckerman Unbound again. And I just started Mm -hmm. laughing and I was like, this is just, it's a classic comic conceit. This idea of, you know, Frankenstein's monster or, you know, creating something that, becomes bigger in a sense than you right. are becomes out of your control so mm-hmm. that was really my jumping off point that's part of the fun i think with philip roth or with this i've seen
1: like well there's a piece of her in this or i can envision this as this woman that i've you know read about and heard about before being you right how much of i guess how right are people to read your sex in the city experience into this or how much of it is sort of based on that and how much sort of
3: well the fantasy i i think it's it's human nature that we always, mm-hmm. you know, read books and associate the author with the main character. You know, when Brett Easton Ellis was writing American Psycho, he <laughs> was like, so many people think I'm a psycho killer, Candace. No, there's, they shouldn't read anything into it. It's like, take a chill pill, baby. Yeah, uh, It's a great comic novel. It's, it's so kind of far out there that... If you really think it's me and my Sex and the City experiences, you're just cray-cray. You're crazy. I think it's hilarious that people think that I have the life of PJ Wallace when I don't at all. PJ Wallace is like, she has sex with movie stars and like super famous men. I'm like, that's not me. You never fucked a movie star? No.
1: Ugh, too bad. Have you? No, I haven't, you know. Missing on my checklist, I suppose.
3: I think they're (laughs) pretty easy to have sex with. I suppose. I've heard they kind of have sex with anybody. (laughs) They just want to get their weenies waxed. I'm going to get in trouble for that.
1: To me, part of the sort of the fun of this book, or part of what's so sort of ballsy about it, is the fact that you're sort of inviting the reader to be confused about reality. I dare you to think this is me, you know? Like, I dare you to read reality into this. You don't see that as...
3: No, no, I mean, I think it's always, you know, I'm not doing it like, uh, you know, I dare you to see reality mm-hmm. in this because, you know, <laughs> that's just not my yeah. personality. But I do think that writing a comic novel is ballsy as a woman because when you're writing comedy, you exaggerate things for comic effect. Sure. And there aren't actually that many funny books. What books written do you think by are women. Funny. God, the last book I read that I thought was funny was maybe I mean, I'm talking laugh out loud funny, not like, oh, it's entertaining, my mm-hmm. you know, or like, oh, there's a little chuckle there. Uh, you know, I'm going for big laughs. Big cinematic movie laughs and cinematic scenes and that sort of thing. One of the things that's interesting is how many women are like scolding, like, how dare you write something like that where you want to kill your own character? It's like, lady, I'm not doing that. It's like, nobody's going to tell me what I can and cannot write. Do you, why do you think people have that reaction? As one woman once said to me when Sex in the City first came out, she said, Candace, some women just never want to see other women having any fun. And this is just a really fun, great romp. People who have read it have told me that they've laughed out loud. I don't know. Ask me the question again because I went on a tangent. (laughs) Oh, no. I was
1: asking why you think people have that reaction of being angry at you.
3: I don't feel like they're angry at me, but they're angry at something. And one of the things that I've noticed is... Actually, the only thing that feels similar to me about Killing Monica and Sex in the City is that when Sex in the City came out, it had much the same reaction of women saying, oh, the characters aren't likable and pa all of this kind of thing. And I think in a way, it's people feel like something's going to be big and... It just comes out of like an envy, jealousy. And, you know, they're also totally entitled to their opinion. It doesn't bother me.
1: You mentioned women sort of being schooled. Do you feel like that type of criticism is mostly coming from women?
3: It's coming from women and men. I mean, you know, it's a funny thing that happens in publishing, and I've seen it happen a lot. You know, there's this sort of thing in the air where they all decide whether they're going to give you a good or a bad review. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of glom onto that. And this happens to every author. So, you know, that's why you get these reviews for books that are su- super, super inflated. It's like everybody decides that they're going to give that book a good review. And then, you know, I mean, these negative reviews, it's like, ugh, please, why don't you, if you don't like the book, take the space. And use it for a book that you do like. I mean, why Mm -hmm. are you wasting your time? They're only wasting their time because there's an underlying truth to it. And the only way I've found to be able to get to these underlying truths is not through reality or a journalistic approach, but really to create a different world. It's like a parallel universe where there are different rules. And, you know, that's where I find I can express myself is in this parallel universe.
0: So uh, what do you guys what what do you guys think of Candace? <laughs> uh,
3: she's
2: um she's very direct. I'll give her that. She yeah, is. You know, really, and the thing is yeah. she was
1: really I mean, she was really fun to interview. It just really surprised me that she was just up and down and say it's absolutely not that. To me, what I saw as the literary value of it was something that she would just say, absolutely not. Just laugh, be merry, but also it's Frankenstein. I mean, to me,
0: it was so incredibly (laughs) loaded. Also, like the only really reason it exists as a book is because it has to do with sex and say, like, nobody's going to buy. Many fewer yeah. people would buy it if it were. Well, it's like and if you just. Into
1: the the thing is, I'm like, you're just like, if she was willing to just grab that mantle, yeah. it becomes yeah. really fascinating.
2: Much more interesting than the like, no, 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 yeah. no. Yeah, no. if she must
1: have violently murder Carrie Bradshaw and burn her hair off. That is, that is really interesting. Yeah. I into that.
0: <laughs> but to the extent that we think that she does see Sex in the City as a sort of Frankenstein's monster for her, what do we think she doesn't like about that? franchise and that fame
2: i feel like living in anything for that long that's turned into such it's like its own beast and monster and has so many arms and legs that you don't control i mean it must just be tiresome she must just, yeah you just like need a break from it or to separate yourself from it so you can continue on with whatever is next for her
1: pandy which... and her friends are all very resentful that the world sees Sandra beth and is always like there's monica and there's a scene where her friends are having a party and they go pandy is monica And so there's sort of that, the idea of ownership. Um, Yeah, it
0: seems like she doesn't really want to share the spotlight.
1: (laughs) There was, I mean, I imagine that feeling boxed in. On, like, the second page of Killing Monica, Pandy is talking to her agent, and she says, I know I'd be a fool to turn down money on a sure thing to take a chance on the unknown, but I've got a million stories on my head. I need uncharted territory. I need to be scared. Which I then ask Candace about, and she sort of... Mocked <laughs> my reading of the word "scared." I'm wondering, does this book scare you? What what counts as uncharted territory for you in your career now?
3: Uh, making music videos <laughs> <laughs> is that on the is that on the roster? That's on the roster. Oh, really? Um, who are you making a music video for? For me, for Killing Monica. You? Oh, there's I'm making a theme song. Uh huh. I wrote it on GarageBand. Oh, now really? Now I'm trying to make it sound professional, and it's just. Like, that's a nightmare part. And then I've shot quite a bit of video for it. And oh, wow. I have a line of emojis that are coming out with Killing Monica. And actually, there's a Killing Monica wine, a rosé, that's a book in a bottle, and a line of stationery from Dempsey and Carol will be coming out. So, I, you know, the character saying, I need uncharted territory, I need to be scared, is that's... You know, that's that character saying that. And I love that line. I mean, I I just, I can see the character saying that. I need uncharted territory. I need to be scared. It's just dramatic, you know? Yeah. It's funny um,
1: that you mentioned, you know, all the rosés and stuff. There's that crazy scene when the Monica fans literally are rioting with their champagne and things like that. Yes, they have champagne glasses (laughs)
3: strapped to their heads. Oh, right. (laughs) I'm
1: trying to piece together my memory of all this now.
3: I mean, do you. Which I just thought was such a, you know, like Star Trek fans.
2: Well, it kind of sounds like she's building another, like, Sex and the City esque empire with the emojis and the stationery and the consumer. Does it
0: mean to say that maybe Sex and the City pulled the franchise thing off a little more tastefully? I might agree with that. Rose with a book attached.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's also funny because when I was reading the whole thing as a satire, my alternate reading of Killing Monica. I thought the most biting part of the satire was how the Monica character is obsessed with pink champagne. And so all the girls buy pink champagne and all of her friends buy pink champagne and put it in their tubs. And when the fans literally have a violent riot, they literally are weaponizing the pink champagne. And then that then dovetails with the scene at the like feminist rally and the weirdness of all those sort of like tokens of femininity coming together and sort of subsuming this woman and turning into literal violence I thought that was really funny. Like, I was laughing, but I don't know if I was laughing the way she wanted me to laugh anymore. How do you think she wanted you to laugh? I don't know. Like, there's this part of me that just wants to sort of reject everything she said and just be like, whatever. She's, in my head, she's a literary genius, and it's because (laughs) of X, Y, Z. And she thinks I'm dead wrong, but I refuse to let go.
0: Did you ask her about feminism at all and what she thought of as her role or the show's role?
1: She couldn't name any female writers that she admired, which, I mean, you know, sometimes you get asked a question, you just blank out. But we did discuss about dating and how she no longer dates even though she is now single again.
0: She was married for a while.
1: She married a principal dancer from the New York City of Ballet. And oh. so Darren Starr always said it was sort of an in joke when they cast Baryshnikov against Carrie Bradshaw. That struck me as actually when I watched Sex and the City, the show, and I think the moment that it gets away from Candace Bushnell the person is the sort of obsession with marriage. Can you tell me about your personal life? You're single now, right? I am. Do you date?
3: No. Why not? I'm not not dating. If somebody comes into my life organically, then that makes sense. It doesn't make sense to me at 56 to be going out and looking for a man or looking for a relationship. There's so many more things that I'm interested in doing than spending. Spending my time looking for a man. How important do you think marriage or relationships are
1: in a lifetime or at any particular moment?
3: I think it depends on the person. And I've always been very self contained, and I was really raised to be an individual and, you know, not to get your self esteem or your happiness from somebody else. I am always a little bit confused when women will come up and say that they really want to have a relationship. They're really looking for a relationship. Um, I don't feel that way. You know, wherever I am in my life, I'm going to make the absolute most of it. And I'm going to enjoy it.
0: It's interesting that you know on some level it would be would have been more exciting even than the non-real satire book that you described to hear her say that very publicly that we really shouldn't be looking for marriage to give us give us any meaning right. and shouldn't be trying to extract any of our own identity from the people that we couple with. I think her fans would be, like, kind of Yeah, and it's that—so
1: yeah. <laughs> there's a scene, and this, yet again, is why—this is on page 14. In the very beginning, there's a party in Pandy's house, and all of her friends come, and they're just kind of, like, shrieking maniacs. And Pandy stands up, and she just is finishing her divorce. One of the things I learned during this divorce, Pandy continued, is that I probably never should have gotten married in the first place, but then my insecurities got the better of me no matter how stupid it is, if you've never been married, it's all you can think about. It's always there in the back of your mind. What's wrong with me? How come nobody's ever wanted me? It's important not to get caught up in society's expectations Cock in the bedroom, someone shouted. (laughs) She literally gets interrupted every time she tries to make these feminist speeches to her friends. They just start screaming about champagne and dicks every time. (laughs) And to me, I was literally laughing out loud because I was like, Jesus, is that not like the horrible plight of whatever sort of meaning could be extracted from sex in the city?
0: So well, I guess this book is way more brilliant than even she understands.
1: <laughs> it's possible, yeah. yeah. I, I think I will never give up on saying that this is some kind of brilliant cultural document. Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm actually quite certain that the brilliance I see is not the brilliance she wants me to see. We've
0: been talking about Killing Monica, the new novel by Candace Bushnell, and in particular the sort of weird hostile interview that Maureen conducted with Candace. <laughs> and now before we move on to our second segment, a quick word from our sponsor. Sundays on Showtime, the critically acclaimed series Masters of Sex, starring Michael Sheen and Lizzie Kaplan, is back for a provocative third season. It's the swinging 60s, and Masters and Johnson have been thrust into the spotlight with the publication of their controversial study. As their newfound fame and pressures mount, their relationship becomes a twisted and tangled love triangle, putting these unlikely leaders of the sexual revolution in a position that even they might not be able to handle. Masters of Sex, new episode Sundays at 10, 9 central, only on Showtime. And now on to our second topic, which is how it is that ugly people get together with hot people. Allison, you have some It's a service-y.
2: For <laughs> I think we're going to have a service yeah, It's, it's Alex, an advice I think it was segment, You I was a actually. dating guide, right? <laughs> um, the um, researcher of this paper said that it's like the Seth Rogen effect. Like, how does yeah. Seth Rogen land Katherine Heigl? And... That was
0: such a crazy cultural flashpoint. People were so offended when that movie came out. <laughs> so the
2: paper suggests that people get hotter the longer you spend with them. So therefore, the average Joe, if you spend a lot of time with him, will be more attractive after a certain uh, period of time, and then you'll want to date him. And that's why there's a dis- between, like, one person, the couple's very hot, and the other one's, like, kind of average. They videotaped couples talking about their relationship, and they found that couples who were rated—and had judges rate them—and they found that couples who were rated as equal levels of attractiveness normally started dating within, like, a month of meeting one another— Whereas couples who were rated as like having a huge disparity uh, had known each other for longer periods of time before becoming romantically involved. So it's like they were friends first or acquaintances first or coworkers
1: and then started dating. I think the word for it is propinquity, right, which is the idea of the thing around becoming more attractive over time. And yet there's also something very insidious about this, I think. I have this one girlfriend that calls it the satellite men. She's like, you know those guys that are just orbiting you oh, and they're God. waiting for the moment of weakness when they can just like crash in <laughs> oh and my God. get you? Oh, so, predatory. Um, yeah. I don't read it like that. I and like
2: to think it's hopeful. Right?
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> probably to those guys, it is hopeful too. You know, it can know? be hopeful for the ladies too, Maureen. It can be hopeful for know. everybody. Yeah. It it's is true. It's that- also less
0: gross if you think of one satellite person. If they're like a dozen satellites, that's like really <laughs> awful. But if it's just one guy who's really into you,
2: it's kind of nice. That's not so bad. Right? Although I don't like the idea of, like, you got to wear them down before they see, like, your value. No, right. That's the very negative (laughs)
1: version of it. But I think
2: the whole spin is that this is very positive, and it also somehow levels the playing field because then desirability is so uh, subjective that, like, you know, the hottest person in the room could be the ugliest person in the room to somebody else, so the competition starts to fall away
1: after a while. And it affirms that idea that once you get to know someone, your superficial social values of how you look is not actually the most important thing. Yeah,
0: you could also call this like the workplace sex study. Right. <laughs> right, right. As much as it is like, what do you want to call it? Uggos and.
1: Uggos and hotties? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Let's not call it that. Normies and hotties. Yeah. So <laughs> we yeah. put it.
0: Right. right. Everyone
1: is beautiful. Just beautiful. I, and more for beautifuls. the
0: record, I actually do think that everyone is beautiful. It strikes me as weird that you, like, Anyone looks around the room and says a certain person is more attractive than another person.
2: But you don't look at couples on the street and you're like, she's so much hotter than the
1: person she's with. Like
2: you when,
0: I, when I see those couples, I think, like, that guy really must have something that I don't understand. Like, he must I be. I totally think so nice.
1: that, too, yeah. actually. That I'm always like, he must be amazing. I'm. He must be so rich. think
0: <laughs> 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 But it's also interesting because, you know, I think it's true that you grow to be more attracted to people over time as you get to know them, but it's not always because, like, you like them. I often feel like I'm more attracted to people when I hate them, when I've, like, (laughs) come to hate them over time.
1: That has literally never happened to me.
0: No. Maybe it's a male thing.
2: Maybe it's a, yeah. As I start to hate people, they really, like, lose attractiveness to me, Yeah, they become
0: ugly to me. Yeah.
2: I, like, can't hang. (laughs)
1: No, someone does something, like, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my God, I can, like, see your nostrils flaring gross. I just, like, see the <laughs> bad
0: see the in you. I all flaws now. Yeah. I know,
1: and when I really like somebody, I think they do actually start to look more beautiful. I think
0: flaws are attractive, though, always. Someone who's, like, really perfectly beautiful, like a supermodel, I actually don't find super If hot.
1: only the supermodel could wear you down, David. <laughs> <I know>. if, <laughs> she I
0: would convince you supermodel. of her beauty. I just don't think of them as sexual beings. I think uh, of them as, like, something else entirely.
2: Well, I guess like for me, the main takeaway of this is everybody has a chance. Nobody with, with anybody. With yeah. anybody, nobody is out of your league. All the normies can get the hotties.
1: <laughs> I don't like the idea of like the normies gonna like snag a hottie now. You know, right. like that's just if there's something that about that. That you for
0: some reason.
2: <laughs> like, sorry, Maureen, you must be on the hottie camp or
1: something. Like, let us normies have a no, chance. No,
2: that is
0: like
1: if that's the way you're doing, like reducing it, like.
0: How would you it's spend the this study? idea
1: that that you look at a relationship as like you're like tricking the best person possible into being with you? You know, like one person has to capture the other person who accidentally had their defenses down and they fell into the lure. And I mean, it may be accurate, but I think I just don't like that way of viewing dating in general. Has you this know? happened
0: to you guys? That you've like, there's, have you dated anybody who you knew for a while before you started dating?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you out of their league, Allison?
2: Um. I'm going to say yes. No, I was like <laughs> super attracted to this guy's friend, and uh-huh. like, immediately his friend was like this so beautiful. And I would go to trivia nights with the two of them, and we would just hang out and hang out. And I was like laser focused on this one guy. And then the other guy was like, all of a sudden, I guess, after a year we made out and i was like oh no it's been you all along other guy and he became infinitely did more. did you attractive say that
0: to, to him <laughs> <laughs> no i was like
1: i thought it was your friend no
0: this no, is the
2: plot of
1: that. every romantic comedy
0: and I then do you also
2: realize
1: the friend was like a villain
2: no friends still cooler and hotter but like <laughs> 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 but you know the other guy became more attractive to me and up to the point where like i was i was into
1: it yeah, yeah. it did get like it is very much the like indie romance rom-com this explains every like justin long is in the corner (laughs) supporting you and your feelings and And at the end you're like it was you
2: but i still almost feel like this doesn't apply really to most dating because like everything's through the internet and tinder right like this doesn't apply if you're swiping right there's you're not going to spend time with the person you don't feel is attractive initially
1: well i think it suggests that on a really internet reliant Love life, that's what you're losing is the people that you didn't know that you were taking a chance on because you didn't even know that they were a possibility until they snuck up on you. I don't know, those people are still there though. I mean we still have our workplaces and (laughs) the the guy at the bodega. I mean we live in a city of like ten
0: million people. There are plenty of people. Yeah.
1: (laughs) There are a lot of people (laughs) around. We're not actually losing that stuff when we also happen to swipe left every now and then. I know you love the Tinder.
0: So we've been talking about how ugly people can uh, snag <laughs> hot people. That's, up. that's what you wanted to. No, call it I Martin. don't like it that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it for Sex Lives. Our producer this week is Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Henry Malawski, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply, for Allison and Maureen. I'm David Wells-Wells. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.